Welcome to the PMNR Pocket Mentor, a podcast brought to you by the Association of Academic Physiatrists Medical Student Council. This podcast is a forum for medical students to get to know physical medicine and rehabilitation and help navigate your journey to an exciting and fulfilling career in the field. So welcome, and thanks for joining us. I came into this conference, probably about 70% sure I want to do PM&R, and well, that's it's close to 100 right now. I feel like I found my fit. It's awesome. It's been a great balance of having fun and learning about the field of physiatry. Puerto Rico has been a great place to have a conference. Got to enjoy the sunshine a little bit and meet a lot of great people here. My name's Holly. Hello, my name is Javier Santana. I'm George Rom. My name's Colin. Hello, my name is Michael Burke. Daniel Lee. Ashley Sanchez. My name is Angelica Garcia. Vishal Bansal. This is Vinny Francio. Quinn Howard. I'm coming down from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm the research representative on the AAP Student Council. I'm from the Dominican Republic. Northern Ontario School of Medicine in Ontario, Canada. McGovern Medical School at UT Health, Houston. Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. I'm from Puerto Rico. UT Health, McGovern. Caribbean Medical University on the island of Curacao. I am originally from Brazil. Howard University. Welcome back to the PM&R Pocket Mentor. I'm your host, Barb Kuzminski. We're going to do something a little different for the next two episodes. Just back in February, we had the AAP annual meeting in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Not only was the location amazing, this was an especially awesome meeting to go to as a med student because we featured some brand new events that were designed just for med students. So in these next two episodes, we'll do a recap of the events recorded at the conference. The first episode will cover the session on how you can shine as a med student on your PM&R rotations. You just heard a few snippets from some of the students that joined us at the conference, and it was really cool to see all the places people were coming from. I want to play a couple more clips, and then we'll dive right into the session. The conference has been extremely interesting and very productive for me. This is the first time I've ever attended here, and I'm definitely going to re- repeat it next year, and the year after that, yeah. I feel very rewarded, so I highly recommend for any student that is starting to get on the train but not quite on it to come to a conference, present or not present, and just kind of experience it. There's a whole lot of great people, and I mean, I feel like I found my fit. All the networking, and you get to know students and attendings, and it's great. This is my first time to the AAP meeting, and I thought it was phenomenal. Really enjoying the AAP here in Puerto Rico, beautiful place, wonderful networking. PM&R is an awesome field, really the most welcoming people, and uh, this meeting has been fabulous. Just fell in love with this profession. You got to meet some great people. Everybody here is so nice and welcoming, really wants you to be enthusiastic and really be involved within PM&R and all the associations. And I just also wish I would have came here earlier. I just really want to encourage any MS1 and MS2s to really just try to come out and participate in these meetings and get involved and meet other people here. It's been really eye-opening seeing how many different research projects are out there and how wide PM&R is and all the different things that people are doing. It's great to see all that in one place. I just wanted to echo that one of the coolest parts of the conference is the people you meet and that it's really never too early in your training to go to these events and see what the field is all about. So let's get into our session. This one was called How to Succeed on Your PM&R Rotation and was presented by Justin Chappelle and Dr. Glendalise Bosquez. 
Justin was last year's vice chair on our medical student council. He's also a fourth year med student at the University of Texas McGovern Medical School in Houston and freshly matched incoming PMNR resident at the Mayo Clinic, which we're all super excited for him about. Dr. Bosquez is a pediatric physiatrist and associate professor also at McGovern at UT Houston. This session hits on all the main things you wish you knew going into a PMNR rotation and included a great breakout session afterwards where we applied the concepts to some practice cases with groups of students from first years to fourth years and even a surprise guest appearance from a residency program director. We'll include some links in the show notes to the main resources mentioned in the session, so be sure to check those out. a lot of sometimes fear and trepidation about how am I going to make a good Im- impression on my first day. When I see a rehab patient, I, I've gotten pretty good at taking a history and a physical in first and second year of medical school, but man, when the, the attending asks me, so what's your plan? What do you want to do? That's when you start sweating and thinking, oh man, there's so many things to consider from like the medical aspect and obviously rehab patients have a lot of social needs that are unique um, that you also need to address. And so that's one way if you can formulate a comprehensive plan that not only takes into the account of the medical aspect, but some more of the psychosocial um, components to a good comprehensive plan can help you really succeed in a way rotation. And ultimately, the main goal is you can really take care of that patient and address what's, what's good for them and best for their needs. First, we'll hear about the biopsychosocial model, which is commonly used on rehab wards, and how that's a little bit different from what you might be used to on other medical wards. In medical school, we talk about a, a lot about the biomedical model. What is at cell level, what is in a system level, and that then how kind of like the manifestations of different disease processes, etc. And so we typically focus more on the disease process, on the illness, and then kind of like the treatment. And then when you're a medical student and you're trying to understand how that takes into effect into the US families, you're like, Patient presents with A, so I need to do B, so what's the best answer, correct? And in rehab, um, and that's a lot of linear thinking, and I think in rehab we do a lot of like more creative thinking. The perspective is different. So it's basically like a paradigm shift or a blueprint change in which we basically go from a biomedical model into a biopsychosocial model. And the biopsychosocial model is going to take into, this, into consideration all of these things that we already mentioned, but also what are the secondary um, effects from the condition or the disease disease process uh, that is going to impact the patient's quality of life, function, and then not just in the hospital setting or in the clinic visit, but also at home, at school, at work, and in the community. So we need to basically take all of this information into consideration and change how we think of the patient in a functional matter. Let's say the patient presents with a disease, let's take, I don't know, a stroke, and then the person is going to have some sort of impairment that is at the organ level in which it's going to affect the structure or the function of that organ or system, let's say aphasia. And then that's going to result in a disability, and that's typically a person level. So, hey, it's going to have like a paralysis, therefore it's going to have decreased mobility. And then a handicap, and that's how the environment affects the person or the role, and then the person is unable to work because of that. However, this tends to continue to be a linear blueprint. And when we're in rehab, we tend to think of 
uh, the biopsychosocial modeling, we, we still take into consideration everything that I just mentioned, but then we're going to include activity limitations, uh, restrictions in participation, in addition to additional contextual factors that are going to be environmental and personal factors that may affect the patient's function, compliance, etc. And then we're going to start noticing that there are some factors that are either going to be facilitators or barriers. So when we talk about activities and participation, we are basically talking about learning and applying knowledge regarding, for example, their medical condition, a general task and demand that that person has in their home, in their community, at work, how it affects their communication, their movement, their self-care, areas around their life, interpersonal interactions, major areas of life, and then community, social, and civic life. And we basically want for our patients to live independently and integrate back into the community as much as possible, despite that this is process or that uh, condition. So environmental factors are going to include, for example, products and technology. We also need to take into consideration natural environments or even human-made changes to the environment and that, that, how is that going to facilitate the person's ability to access it or create a barrier. And we also need to think about attitudes, support and relationships, and then the, the service, the system, and policies that are in place in order for people to be able to engage in the community, in their job, in their roles, etc. So let's say, for example, a stroke. So where do you think a stroke goes? On their health condition, correct? How about, oh man, okay, you guys were supposed to tell me what's on their body function. Weakness and aphasia. <laughs> How about activities? The person may present with like hemiplegia or something like that, so then, the activity is going to be a change ability to walk or talk or both. And then the participation is that, for example, the person may not be able to work. Therefore, the disability is not static or the handicap is not going to be static. It may depend on the environment. So for example, if, if that person has a flexible job design that would allow participation and reintegration into the workforce, and if, for example, a person has a mobility device, they would have the ability to move around the house and be able to do what they need to do or even out in the community. So this is a worksheet in, bas in basically we incorporate the international classification of function and all of this biopsychosocial model is very well delineated in the ICF. We can basically map all of these things and I actually encourage you guys that when you do for example, a rehab rotation, in addition to doing your HMP and your physical examination, is to maybe sit with a patient and actually go through these things. Once you get your physical examination, once you get your HMP, you may think of, hmm, maybe it is a good idea if I check if the patient is married or has a spouse, if the patient, uh, what's the dwelling of the patient, do they live in a first floor apartment with a ramp or do they live in a fourth floor apartment without elevator access? Where did they complete high school? Did they go to college? Because all of those things are going to give you additional information of what their basic functions are, in addition to some of the more advanced ones. That is going to help you further diversify that assessment and plan in which you have a better idea of what the goals of the patient might be, what are their limitations, what are their barriers, what are their uh, facilitators, etc and also what additional plans or considerations we need to incorporate into our uh, assessment and plan as we discuss it with uh, the residents and the attendings. 
Now we'll hear about a few of the more common conditions that you might see on a typical rehab ward, along with some of the basic management and other pearls. Cerebral palsy is actually the most common diagnosis or impairments or condition in the pediatric rehab population. It's the most common disability in children. Just be aware that cerebral palsy is just a static encephalopathy and it's secondary to an immature, to an injury to an immature nervous system, okay? So that means that if an injury happens prenatal, perinatal, or even postnatal up to the age of two, you can meet the criteria the definition for cerebral palsy. We usually classify it by areas of the body affected. So for example, if a kid with cerebral palsy has all four extremities affected, that means that they're spastic, they really cannot move them well. How would you classify that? Uh, You're close. It is in the tetra area because it's four. So two rehab physicians back in the day decided that they were bored and then decided that they really wanted to define the difference between tetraplegia and quadriplegia. So quadriplegia and tetraplegia means something very similar. One has a Greek root and the other one has a Latin or Roman root. So typically when we're using the quad and the die, it's coming from the brain, and when we use tetra and para, physically the manifestation is the same, but then it comes from the spinal cord lesion. If you tell them to your attending, you're going to chime. Some attendants may not be aware about the difference between tetraplegia and quadriplegia. So how about if there is involvement of only the lower extremities? Diplegia. Good. Okay, how about if there is involvement of half of your body? Hemiplegia. So in kids with cerebral palsy, if they come in and they only have mostly spasticity in their lower extremities, they have diplegic cerebral palsy. If they only have one side, it's hemiplegic cerebral palsy. You can also classify it by the movement disorder, and most of it is uh, it, it's a change in tone. The most common one is the spastic cerebral palsy. What other changes in tone are out there? Flaccid, very rare to have hypotonic cerebral palsy. If there is a kid that has a, spas uh, sorry, a, a flaccid or hypotonic quadriplegia, most commonly it's associated with mitochondrial genetic syndrome. What other tone changes? Everything in between, between spastic and flaccid, no? So what, what else? How about when the tone fluctuates? How do we call that? It's called dystonic or dynamic tone. So you can have spastic in which that spasticity is there all the time. You can have dystonia and that's, you can sometimes see posturing, and maybe if you see the kid in, on the examining table, you say like, they're not that tight, come on Johnny, walk, and the kid is like, that's posture, and that's more tone that is increased with activity, that's dystonia, okay? The kid can have a mixed picture of dystonic spastic CP, so we can classify with tone. And then we also can classify it by the motor function. And we typically use the gross motor functional scale, which is, it goes from one to five. One, being able to walk independently on even surfaces without an assistive device, all the way down to a five, which is completely dependent for the mobility despite a wheelchair. So I'll actually take over to discuss another common pathology um, that you'll likely see on a rotation in PM&R and that would be a patient with traumatic brain injury. So one of the first things that I think it's good to think about when you're coming up with your primary rehab diagnosis is understanding how we classify the severity of a brain injury. And really that's all related to the Glasgow Coma Scale, 
which I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with. It's actually graded from 3 to 15. And so when you're classifying the severity of a, a TBI, at least on admission, when they perform that GCS, if the score of that is between 3 and 8, that's what you would call a mild TBI, moderate being 9 to 12, and then 12 to 15 being severe. So also when you're thinking about a patient with a TBI, not only understanding their primary rehab diagnosis, but also thinking about what associated medical comorbidities they, they have, it's good to think about all the things and organ systems that damage to the brain can affect. So just thinking about the CNS, obviously you can have motor and sensory impairments. I mean, you can have patients with aphasias, you can have patients with hemiplegias, et cetera, and they also can have cognitive deficits. So thinking about if they're having disinhibition from say like a frontal cortex injury or impulsivity, making sure that you're addressing that um, in an acute rehab setting um, will be very important. And like I mentioned, with uh, the nature of a brain injury, you do get involvement of many organ systems. So it's very important with these patients to, to look at everything. Not only the, like, their vital signs, their labs, they can have issues with the endocrine system. So one of the diagrams that I have put up with damage to the central nervous system, if you get damage to the pituitary or the stock, one example, not only can you see SIDH, but you can also see other things such as central diabetes insipidus when you get damage to the pituitary, um, you're not releasing antidiuretic hormone. So by paying attention, for example, to the sodium value on their labs can spot a potential endocrine issue in this patient population. There's other things to consider. It's not just spinal cord injuries where you see dysfunction of the bowel and bladder, but also recognizing that occurs in um, patients with TBI. And lastly, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, safety is uh, an important concern with patients with TBI. Because with extended rehab stays, I put up a picture of the staging of pressure injuries, which is actually the new term that's best to describe that. And so even as with a stage one pressure injury, just noticing a erythema over the patient's skin that's non-blanchable, which should be, should be something you're looking for, can give you an idea that this patient needs to be frequently turned by the nursing staff. That's one way that you as a medical student can make sure that you're looking out for the patient's safety. And lastly, I had written that societal integration for these patients is very important. No matter what, what age they are, getting a patient with a TBI back to um, being an excellently performing student, back to school, becomes important or getting them back to their job. So I actually have a slide that transitions well with that. Being, thinking about the, the laws that would apply to patients with disabilities, and specifically with TBI. So I know I, I put up as example knowing the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, or the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act um, and the application to potentially the patients that you see. But specifically for a TBI, because it's one diagnosis that actually would classify you for an individualized um, education plan, just being aware of that, that that's something that you can address in an inpatient setting and work with, uh, work with social workers to come up with something that will set that patient up for success when they go home from the hospital um, and making sure that they're functioning well in the community when they leave your care. So the next slide, I'll actually transition to talking about spinal cord injury. Again, I do apologize, this will be a very high level overview. But I think it's good just to familiarize yourself with what you are expected to know when you're coming on a rotation in PM&R. And so one of the things, if you're gonna see a patient with a spinal cord injury, you need to familiarize yourself with the ASIA exam. But even beyond that, I think when you're thinking about the pathology that you're expected to encounter with a patient with a spinal cord injury, one of the most important questions that I've um, been recommended to think about is the nature of pathology in an acute spinal cord injury I mean, what you'll see there with neurogenic shock or like the very hypercoagulable state that they're in acutely versus the pathology you're expected to see in more of a chronic spinal cord injury because it's different. That's always a good mental question to ask yourself when you're seeing a patient with a spinal cord injury. And then just understanding what the ASIA exam is, what its purpose is, because it gives you a common language to discuss spinal cord injury with other rehab professionals. And then also understanding, given that um, ASIA classification, the Asian impairment scale, 
um, that you subsequently identify, knowing what that means functionally for the patient, because that can very much direct the goals um, that you suggest for their inpatient therapies and understanding um, what, their, what their progress should look like. So next, I mean, this will be a very high level. I, I did include this in the pre-reading, but it's okay if no one got to, I'm slightly disappointed and a little bit hurt. Um, but it was in the, the email, but this is something that I do really encourage you to walk through on your own. It is, con it is complicated. Um, Dr. Bosk has actually told me, you can actually go on the Asia website um, and you actually get a certification um, by learning this on your own. And that can be a great way when uh, uh, your resident wants to go on and do an Asia exam, you offer like, can I try to do this? And tell you like the findings that I, I find in Come up with your own age classification and see if it matches theirs. But on a very high level overview, essentially the, the Asia exam, or INSCI, it's actually the, the, the new uh, kind of terminology um, for the Asia exam, it essentially has a sensory and a motor component. It is sort of that simple. So bilaterally you will go down with the patient testing pinprick sensation and light touch, obviously your dorsal column and your spinal thalamic pathways to arrive at a sensory level of injury which really you're looking like it, it's on the slide, the most called segment of the cord with normal sensory bilaterally, which is key. So as you see like these dots on this, on this patient, they really just go down testing back and forth, back and forth. And the last part that I consider part of the sensory exam is whether they can feel deep anal pressure. And I'll talk about the significance of that for patients who may have an Asia A level um, of injury, neurological level of injury. So there's also a motor component. And, and with this, it's just good to understand that you're going to test five muscles in the upper extremities bilaterally and five in the lower. Elbow flexors, wrist extensors, hip flexors, etc. with the way you, you should familiarize with yourself of how we grade a muscle function in rehab and really in, in medicine in general. And the last part I would consider as part of the motor exam is voluntary anal contraction. And so with the results of that ASIA exam, and we're actually going to give you a, a case of a patient with a spinal cord injury, We'll ask that you kind of decipher what that Asia neurological level of injury is, but you'll also arrive at Asia impairment scale. And this is really where function starts to come into play. This is one exam really in medicine where you do not want an A. An A is not a good thing. That means that you have no sensory or motor function. When you're testing that voluntary anal contraction, that deep anal pressure, patient's not able to feel it and not able to have that voluntary contraction. It's a severe, complete level of injury. But the good news is, if a patient has a lower score, at least on the alphabet, that can mean big things in terms of function. And I actually will quiz you, well, just reading through this, so you have your complete injury at A, and then motor incomplete as an example with an Asia D, that means that they have, below the neurological level of injury, at least a three out of five as far as motor grading strength. So that has implications, so I'll ask you a question on this next slide, and I'll go back to that other one. Would you rather have, based on what I just said, a C2, like a very high level cervical spinal cord injury, Asia D, or would you rather have a T8 Asia, or AIS classification of A? Do so you want to take a shot at that of what, if you had to choose, what would you choose? I'd go for the D. you check the D? And yeah. why? This is the important question. Yeah, more motor function impact, even though it's a higher level of injury. Exactly. No, I mean, that, that's spot on. So like with a C2 Asia impairment scale of D, even though it's a very high injury, if it's a D classification, that patient actually might walk. They have at least a three out of five strength in their, and usually with assistance, they're probably not gonna be a community, uh, maybe ambulator, but with bracing, with therapies to maximize the strength, the residual strength that they have, that incomplete injury, that patient might walk. So I agree, I would also choose the C2 Asia D. So I'll go back to this. This is one thing that's uh, easy to spot when you're spotting a complete injury of the spinal cord. We call this in rehab the noon sign. 
It's essentially when they're not able to feel that voluntary anal contraction, or they're not able to perform that, excuse me, and they don't feel that deep anal pressure, and you have zeros across the board as far as your sensory and your uh, motor exam like across um, that, that area. We call that the noon sign. That means that patient has a, a complete level of injury. So just because uh, it's always important to go back to function and rehab. I mean, that's how you formulate a good assessment and plan. You could go and do what I did and try to memorize all these muscles that when you have this level of spinal cord injury that these get de-innervated. But I think it's much better to think about like, the function that they will have. So for a C6, as an example, level of injury, one thing that's important to know is that one unique function that they will have is what's called a tendinitis grasp. So for those of you who've done a rehab rotation, you'll probably be familiar with that. But essentially, if you have intact wrist flexion as you perform that, or the wrist extension, excuse me, perform that wrist extension, you'll actually get opposition of your index finger and your thumb finger based on how the tendon sheath kind of runs along to that first digit. And so that has implications for function. If you kind of supplement that motor ability um, with some ingenuity as far as tools, that patient can form some of their ADLs independently. Now you might get quizzed on this, what the, the normal level of injury that allows for independence for a spinal cord injury really is C7. Um, you have to think about all the implications of what having intact elbow extension means for patients. That means that they're able to operate a manual wheelchair. That means they're able to, with intensive work with inpatient therapies, learn how to transfer themselves safely. Um, so it has functional implications. I think I have one more example of uh, an L4 injury when you're thinking about if you have intact hip and knee flexion extension, that patient can ambulate, likely with... I actually never heard that before. So thinking about other pathology that you will see in a spinal cord injury, essentially you need to ask yourself, with the damage to the sympathetic nervous system, think of all the organs that that can have effect. So I mean, I have listed like the different levels of innervation for these different organ systems, but I think these pictures kind of sum it up well. Patients with spinal cord injury due to denervation of the diaphragm or an impaired cough reflex are at risk of aspiration pneumonias. They're also at risk of bowel and bladder dysfunction, which I have kind of indicated here. So something you need to monitor while taking care of these patients. And the most complex concept that I would encourage you to also read up in is the concept of autonomic dysreflexia. And the best way that I can kind of summarize that is my understanding is it's an, a noxious stimulus that the patient is experiencing below their neurological level of injury. And that triggers an aberrant neurological response that can actually be very dangerous to their patient, to the patient. Their blood pressure can skyrocket, heart rate can increase or even decrease. It's all due, you need to find the source, is the, is the biggest thing when you're, you're suspecting this in a patient, whether that's a distended bladder, they're severely constipated, they have a pneumonia or a UTI, um, you need to kind of have a broad differential. So it's a kind of a funny slide, but for a very serious topic, I think at some point, I mean, I know I had to do this on my rotations in PM&R, you might be asked to discuss prognosis with a patient. Let's say you are the one that performed that ASIA exam, your resident lets you do that, and they might give you the opportunity, like I had when I rotated on the way, to share that news with that patient and what that means. And so I say this because I, I remember I got in all my head, like I don't want to overpromise too much for this patient, but at the same time I don't want to take away hope. So the one thing that maybe I can encourage you to think about is it's okay to admit uncertainty. I think the last thing you, you want to do is be false in any prognostic information that you give them. So not be overreaching in what you think they're going to be able to achieve. Um, but at the same time, I think it's okay to I mean, grieve with patients or suffer with them when they're worried about what their, what their injury means for them functionally and admit that there is uncertainty. But the good thing about brain injuries to the brain or injuries to the spinal cord is the patients should get better. But the question of how much better, it's always based, it's better to err on the side of that's kind of an unknown early in the setting of their 
um, potential injury. For the rest of the session, we split up into groups for case studies like I mentioned. Even for those of us who had done some PM&R rotations, the session was full of pearls and a great way to get in the rehab headspace. This was a brand new event this year at the conference brought to you by the Med Student Council and made happen by Justin Chappelle. Keep an eye out for this and other not to miss sessions at next year's conference in Orlando in March. Actually, the 2020 meeting will be a joint conference with the World Congress of the International Society of Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine. That'll be amazing, and we really hope to see you there. So that's our episode. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Barb Kuzminski, and we'll be back soon with our second episode in the AAP annual meeting recap for med students. Next time, we'll hear highlights from the program director roundtable session, where we got to ask four program directors in PMNR from across the country all of our burning questions. We got amazing insight into the roller coaster that is applying to residency from the mysterious people on the other end of your ARIS application. So make sure you don't miss this one. Lastly, a big thanks to all the people who made the AAP annual meeting such a great success. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tell other med students that might like the PMNR Pocket Mentor about our show. Thanks. Thanks.